As cannabis cultivation continues to normalize across the United States, more and more research and development is being invested in cannabis genetics. Our heritage growers made the cannabis crosses we love today based on intuition and experience. Today, though, a whole new variety of cannabis breeder has evolved, not only using intuition and experience, but also using heavy computing and laboratory analytics as well. While there is certainly no replacement for experience and intuition, technology-assisted breeding greatly decreases the time it takes to actually attain breeding goals because successful cultivars can be analyzed and confirmed on the spot in a spreadsheet instead of having to grow all the plants to maturity and having all the breeder's friends smoke the flowers hoping to confirm the results. With analytical breeding, sex, cannabinoid content, terpene content, and overall potency can be determined in just a few minutes, several thousand times over, making extraordinarily large SIFs a real possibility. The application of these technologies does not create genetically modified organisms. They simply allow traditional Mendelian breeding decisions to occur much, much faster. Today, we're going to be talking about triploid cannabis genetics. These triploid plants are only available to us due to the availability of computing power to cannabis breeders. These plants have three chromosomes instead of two, which makes them sterile and impervious to unintentional pollination. They also exhibit other traits many cultivators want, like increased yields and resistance to pests and molds. Triploids occur in nature in a great many species, and in nearly all cases, these plants are superior to the other plants in their species, so long as you don't intend to breed with them. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. This month, regenerative farming nutrient company Everflux is giving away their full line of products to one lucky subscriber to the newsletter. You'll receive a full bottle of their Bioflux fermented plant booster, their bamboo wood vinegar biostimulant, and a big bucket of Terraflux, their infused biochar blend. You'll get all three. Make sure to listen to their commercial during the show to learn more. Go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter this week and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is Seth Crawford. Seth is a deinstitutionalized academic with a master's in public policy and a PhD in sociology. His focus up till now has been on the political economy of cannabis. For years now, he has been consulted by lawmakers and policy specialists for a better understanding of how the cannabis economy works. Seth is now co-founder of Oregon CBD Seeds, a company researching, developing, and wholesaling specialty novel cannabinoid-dominant cannabis seeds. Seth appeared on episode 25 of Shaping Fire to talk about the convoluted CBD market, and again on episode 37 to discuss the nexus of the medical cannabis and hemp markets. Today, we're going to talk about the dramatic evolution of triploid seeds for cannabis. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Seth. 
Thank you for having me. Oh, so glad to have you here. So let's get right into it, talking about triploids. So, you know, triploids are really common in other agriculture and food industries, but I'm figuring the place to start with today would be if you were to start with the story of your entire valley getting pollinated a few years back, right? Yeah, that was definitely the impetus for us. Um, this was uh, back in 2016. Uh, we had a it was the the second year of industrial hemp production in the state of Oregon, and it was the first year of legal uh, adult use uh, outdoor production. So it was the the inaugural year for THC, and uh, the 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 first I would say big year for industrial hemp. And we had a neighbor who uh, was about three miles away from one of our facilities and six miles away from our major field uh, who had about 75 acres of densely planted male and female uh, industrial hemp or what was supposed to be industrial hemp. Uh, he pollinated our, our field, our facility. He pollinated, you know, neighbors that were 15 miles to the east, 15 miles to the north, 15 miles to the south. It, really demonstrated the viability of cannabis pollen and just how far <laughs> it can travel. Uh, so I will grant him that it was a good, good science experiment. Uh, but on the other hand, it, it devastated a lot of other farmers in the, in the Valley. And unfortunately, um, you know, in, in ensuing years, it, it continued to happen in, in, uh, in smaller, I wouldn't say it was to that scale, but it's definitely been happening in our in our valley and then also throughout the state and other areas, uh, especially in southern Oregon. Um, it's really, really demonstrated to people that, you know, even if you have good communication with your neighbors, um, there are just some folks who cannot be convinced that uh, their right to farm is less important than the common good of, of everybody else being able to have a crop as well. So it's really an outgrowth of, uh, of that experience for us. So folks who are listening to the show who aren't super familiar with pollen, why don't you explain why it's lame that a neighbor's crop pollinated your crop? Uh, you know, if you, if you have a, an all-female crop that you're growing for cannabinoids, whether it's THC, CBD, CBG, et cetera, uh, or even just for terpenes in, in cannabinoid-free plants, if those female plants end up being pollinated, you're going to lose about 50% of your overall biomass and about 30% of your total cannabinoid content uh, just because the, the female plants are putting all of their energy into that seed production rather than into the stuff that we want. Uh, very, very problematic from, a, from an economic standpoint. Yeah. And essentially you're also ruining good medicine, right? So there's a, there's a real human aspect to it as well. Most definitely. And the other, the other side of this too, and it's going to, it's going to uh, be a part of this larger story is, you know, if you're a farmer and you're, you're, uh, let's say you're trying to grow a grain crop in the, the Midwest and you're trying to feed your cattle a very particular type of grain, um, in a lot of cases that grain, while the, the seed itself is, uh, highly impacted by the female that ends up producing the seed. It's also impacted uh, from a, from a, uh, you know, omega three and omega six, and then other, other components of the, the seed that is uh, healthy and, and, you know, good for nutrition that can be influenced by the pollen donor as well. So if you're trying to have a, a pure type of seed, even if it's just, you know, for your cattle, uh, pollen contamination can really play a, a play a significant role in, in undermining that as well. So it's not just cannabinoids, it's, it's also in, in seed production. 
And also, you know, it's it's even more than just uh, commercial cannabis as well. Um, you know, when I appreciate the spirit of people who want to um, gorilla grow um, you know, cannabis plants, right? They let the cannabis be free. And they, you know, they make these little fertilizer balls and they chuck them into, you know, vacant yards and, you know, uh, things like that. And the, the problem with that though, is that if you have these feral cannabis plants growing around, um, you could have a, a patient who's got their little home grow with four or six plants or something. And, you know, they are growing their medicine and it's important. And, you know, somebody has thrown some feral hemp, you know, you know, a few parcels down and one of those seeds becomes a male and all of that pollen is blowing uh, windwardly uh, to this patient's house, suddenly their medicine is going to get all of this pollen and ruin this crop, which, you know, could be literally a, a life or death situation for them. So I'm constantly encouraging people to not gorilla garden, you know, uh, regular sexed seeds because it's kind of dangerous for everybody. It really is, you know, and you, you can't imagine a, a worse punch in the stomach than to have that small outdoor grow that you put all that time and energy into, uh, you know, in your backyard in Oregon, it's four plants. Um, you know, you get to the end of the season and, and, uh, your plants are finishing up and you realize, Oh no, there's, there's seed in all of this. You know, you, you basically lose, you know, three to four months of your life and all that time and energy you put into it. Um, it, you know, it's a, in a way it's a lot like legalization, you know, at the very beginning before there was any, uh, any form of, uh, legal THC consumption in the United States at the state level. Uh, you know, a lot of advocates would say, ah, we just have to legalize it, just legalize it, you know? And, well, yes, that's true. We need to legalize it. Uh, the process of legalization, once you start to get into the, the weeds of policies and rules and, and how that gets implemented becomes much, much more complicated. Um, I think the same thing is definitely true in industrial hemp. Uh, we have a lot of folks that are big advocates of, of hemp in general who have constantly criticized uh, some of the farmers over the last few years for growing, you know, CBD or other cannabinoids and not putting energy into, uh, you know, fiber crops or grain crops and that type of stuff. And it's that same question. It's, you know, hemp can do these amazing things. However, how, how can we make all of these different uses coexist peacefully? And I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges that we have in the 21st century of being able to adapt this crop, uh, both to the landscape and to the, the social landscape of being able to have people, interact in a way that's not going to be negative for either party. We talked about that quite a bit last time you were here about how, you know, after your valley got pollinated, um, you know, you tried to pull together the local farmers to uh, create what, what I called at the time a pollen exclusion zone for lack of an official term. And, uh, and you said that, you know, it was actually really challenging because um you know, farmers are some of the most independently minded people that there are, as similarly with, you know, liberation minded folks and to kind of pull people together to kind of agree to not do certain things on their property. There's a lot of pushback. And, you know, one of the things that we're going to talk about today is, is why triploids are great. And I think that this is a, this is going to be an opportunity today where, where science is going to make the politics of living in your neighborhood easier. 
Exactly. Exactly. We had tried from a policy perspective and from a social perspective to try to get people to engage and, and agree uh, and come together. And it just it wasn't possible. Um, but the, there's other ways. <laughs> so so during the during the uh, introduction to the show, you know, I mentioned vaguely what what triploids are. So people knew what they were in for today. But, you know, since you are, you know, deep into uh, uh polyploidy science. Um, why don't you go ahead and give us your definition of what a triploid is? Yeah. And I would uh, first couch this and say uh, the reason that we even have a ploidy breeding program here at Oregon CBD is uh, because we hired a recent uh, PhD, Shen Chen, uh, who is an absolute genius when it comes to uh, both plant breeding and for the, the manipulation of ploidy. Uh, so he's, he's, really the one that is uh, is the driving force behind this at our company. Um, so Dr. Shen Chen and Brandon Rojas, who, who works with uh, Dr. Chen, um, are, are really the really the intellectual uh, weight behind this project. Um, so I'm, I'm just basically the uh, the communicator of general science. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so triploids are so cannabis is traditionally a diploid species, which means that it has uh, two sets of homologous chromosomes. It inherits one set from uh, one parent and the other set from its other parent, uh, unless it's a, a self-pollinated plant, in which case it is inheriting from that, that previous, uh, just from that initial parent. Um, so two copies of chromosomes are great. It gives you, you know, the opportunity if you have, uh, say, one bad gene or two good genes to be able to, uh, you know, basically have a, a fully functional plant or a plant that ends up expressing things in a, in a really profound way. Uh, triploids are plants that have three sets of homologous chromosomes, which, uh, you know, if two sets are, are good, three sets ought to be really, really good. Um, but to get to that point, you have to have uh, tetraploid plants. So a tetraploid would be a plant that has four homologous sets of, of these chromosomes. So what I just described is uh, diploid, triploid, tetraploid, uh, you can continue going up the, the polyploid scale and having more and more sets of homologous chromosomes. Um, however, as you, as you start to increase those numbers, there tends to be uh, 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 basically a dropping off of the positive impacts and an increase of some of the negative impacts. So one of the challenges in ploidy breeding, uh, ploidy breeding is to identify at what level of ploidy does this particular species end up having its maximum expression of health, vigor, vitality, et cetera. So, um, so the fact that these uh, triploid plants were kind of like superhero plants with these, this extra chromosome really um, struck me. You know, I understood right off the bat that a, you know, that a triploid was not going to reproduce, right? And th therefore, you know, it, it was not going to be impacted by pollen. And I'm like, you know, cool, Seth, that's, that's a great thing. But then as I researched the scientific papers preparing for the interview today, I'm like, oh my gosh, the list of um, increased benefits to plants from triploid it's it's really astonishing. So so here here's a sh short list of, of what I've picked up from the science: um, uh, pest and disease resistance, stem straightness, increases in chloroplast number, which results in strengthening photosynthesis, 
Um, uh, flowers of triploid plants are generally larger and more colorful than those of their diploid counterparts because the energy is devoted to, uh, instead of seed formation, is used for flowers and other organs, height and yield. So, I mean, my God, it sounds like by adding this third set of chromosomes that you're creating these super plants. It's exactly true. Uh, <clears throat> and really what it comes down to, uh, it, it, it's a little bit more complicated than that um, <laughs> in the sense <laughs> that all of these things that you're saying are, are 100% true. But um, the, the challenge for us has been to identify which combinations of genes uh, will result in the attainment of all of those wonderful attributes. Um, what we have seen is that in the same way that you can, uh, you know, take a specific combination and create uh, incredible triploid plants, uh, you can also get the wrong combination of genes and create a plant that is, uh, I would say, less than a diploid in terms of its ability to uh, be very successful in any given environment. Um, so the the real challenge this summer has been uh, doing field trials to identify which of those crossing patterns are going to give you the, the best results. Wow, that that you just put the, my whole idea on its end because so 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 technically you could get all of these um you know good variables in the plant but but you also could uh breed something that's especially bad it's it kind of reminds me of like you know maybe with your earlier breeding product projects you were trying to solve a rubik's cube but now it's a cube like with like 10 rows instead of just three rows or something like that uh uh you're spot on with the metaphor uh, as you as you increase the ploidy you begin to increase the complexity of what you're dealing with um, and you know with a with a plant that is as complicated as cannabis uh, and up until very recently so little known about the underlying genomics uh, it was in a lot of ways a, a guessing game and to be perfectly honest going into this summer we we had ideas about what could work and uh, what should work and you know some of those did definitely have have panned out already um, but others have been huge huge surprises and we basically had to go back to uh, the underlying data that that we're able to luckily in-house uh, generate using our, our whole genome sequence uh, equipment to produce these these really high resolution genomes uh, we can basically figure out you know you've got gene a and gene b uh, we've got two copies of gene A and one copy of gene B, and you end up with a plant that is uh, 12 inches tall when it finishes. If you get one copy of gene A and two copies of gene B, the the inverse happens, and you end up with a five-foot-tall autoflower plant that's you know yielding two and a half pounds of 20% CBDA flowers. Um, so it's it's really really important to be able to get those those proper combinations mapped out. What what is the tool that you use to figure out the percentages of variability for all these traits showing up? Because you know, I'm 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 imagining that triploid kind of like makes breeding uh, squares cry. You know, where you're figuring out what what traits are going to be passed on. Right? I, I would imagine that triploids makes that very complex. And at some point, you want to you know just dump all of these data points 
into a computer and say, okay, figure out of these, um, of these genetics, which ones are expressing which, how many of them we have that are advantageous, and which of these parents we actually want to bring together to, to secure the most, most of the traits what we want. Is that, is that simply dropping it into a, a database or what, what is the tool that you use to help move you ahead on that when the variability is so mathematically high? Uh, two two things, and you know, I'm coming from a my my. We've talked about this before, but my PhD is in sociology, and one of the things that we have to do in in sociology is take very disparate amounts of data to try to explain a particular social outcome. And in those situations, you end up explaining. You know, you'll come up with a list of variables that are you know eight to ten really really explanatory of variables that have a big impact on your on your final outcome. And they'll end up explaining, you know, if you're lucky, 30 to 40 percent of the total variation within any given population for any given question. Uh, I think the same thing is pretty accurate when it comes to this particular crop. Um, we're dealing with, in a diploid plant, you're dealing with over uh, roughly 30,000 different genes that are in the plant. And you have to deal with, you know, different alleles and different combinations of those and crosses. That obviously is going to increase to about 45,000 when you have uh, a triploid plant. Um, so the, the tools that we use, uh, you know, the whole genome sequence data is, is really useful. Um, but at the same time, we're also basically in discovery mode, trying to figure out what each one of those genes are and uh, what they actually do in the plant. Uh, chemical data is also really useful. Um, so we're using genomic data, chemotype data, and then you know, the, the, the last leg of this in triangulating which crosses work the best is just make the crosses and grow them in the field. Uh, it's your phenotype data. So for us, I think we can kind of, we can create a, a, a broad, a broad stroke, broad outline of what could come out of a cross based on the underlying genomics. And we have a really good idea of what the, the chemical data is going to look like based on that underlying, those underlying genes. But the actual things that mean the most to us outside of, of chemicals, the, the vigor, the flowering time, the, uh, the ability to deal with, with plant stresses and, uh, you know, drought, disease pressure, et cetera, uh, those things really only show up when you're in the field. And it, it's field trials and growing them out and, and just visually taking a look at, at each combination uh, seems to be the best approach. But you can't do you really can't do modern breeding without all three. If you're not using all three, you're you're really just kind of swinging in the dark. Right on. It probably also keeps you a better balanced person. Instead of keeping you in the lab, you have to put on your boots and go out into the field. Exactly. Well, I mean, that's where you want to be in the first place. So it's <laughs> <laughs> one a of the excuse. You know, one of the things that um, is a remark in in the state of the of the science right now is, you know, with you trying to like, um, you know, activate these different, um, parts of the genome to see what they do. It, it, it's, it's as if we're still at a state of science where there's still some intuition involved. Um, whereas a lot of other plant species where triploids are very common and everything's become very mechanized and just kicking out seeds, you know, that, that science was already settled. Whereas the cannabis genome is still so tasty and fresh that, that, yeah, you've, you've got your analytical equipment that, that helps you quantify what's happening. But really, since we're talking about real world, 
expressions that mean a lot in the field, it really takes for you to go out, walk the plants, see the ones that you know strike your fancy, uh, touch them, feel them, smell them, and then go back to the lab with that information. And um, I, you know, I like the idea that there's still some analog left in this kind of breeding. Oh, it's uh, once you're once you're able to kind of nail down the, the the science side of it, and you have a good data collection process going from the genomic side, from the chemical side, uh, and even on the, the phenotype side, there really is an art to, to the selection process. There always has been, and I think there always will be. Um, you know, and this is true in, in any type of breeding program. We're, uh, we're in close contact with a lot of the folks at the USDA ARS here in, uh, in Corvallis and at the University at Oregon State. Um, because it, we're part of this larger plant breeding community at this point, now that there's some... Uh, some acknowledgement that, you know, this is a legitimate industry and it, it is having a big impact on Oregon agriculture and, and farms across the country. Um, at the end of the day, there's always going to be art involved. You know, it's, you want to you know, take berries, for instance, you know, you, you want a, a blackberry that has, you know, the right sugar content and the right harvestability and, you know, all the, all the right variables, all the boxes get ticked. But at the same time, you also, as a as a human, you have a, a if you have a fairly developed palate, you can pick, you know, discern between a berry that has just the right amount of sweetness versus a berry that's say overly sweet or undersweet or whatever it happens to be. Um, and I think that's where the beauty's at because everybody has uh, it, everybody has a, a different interpretation of what that that ultimate is going to be, what that perfect version is going to be, and it it leads to all of these different spaces being available for different breeders to, to come in and sort of make their mark. So um, before we go to the first commercial break, because I think we're all excited about set two, where we're actually going to talk about, you know, the science and how they are, uh, triploids are actually made. Um, since, since this topic today is actually triploids and not like a profile of your company, you know, can you, are, are, is there anybody else in the cannabis industry who is uh, working on triploids that we want to give a nod to is also, you know, being a leader in this area? Uh, not commercially at this point. Um, however, we are working with uh, the University of Connecticut uh, just as a sort of an informal research relationship. Um, I believe we're a little further along uh, in our process and our, our breeding program than they are. Uh, however, they are definitely, definitely involved and in doing some really, really cool work. Uh, there, There's... Uh, it's Jessica Lovell Brand, I believe, is the professor there. Um, her and her husband, and then uh, there's two or three graduate students who are working on projects. Um, they're, they're doing some really cool stuff, and uh, there's also some folks at Oregon State University that are working on this as well. Um, but in, in terms of uh, commercial uh, adaptation of, of triploids and being able to release them, I'm, I'm confident that we're the only ones uh, right now in the world that will be releasing uh, triploids for 2021. Man, you're going to be making a lot more uh, commercial seed buyers cry, <laughs> just like when you brought out your auto-flowering CBD seeds, oy vey. So it, the goal, it's the goal every year. You have to get better. Uh, you know, if, if you're not getting better at what you're doing, then uh, there's, you know, I think it's questionable whether or not there's room for you in the space. <laughs> right on. So uh, we will start talking about how these uh, seeds are made after the break. Um, we are going to take that short break now. You are listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is socioecologist Seth Crawford.
If you listen to Shaping Fire and you grow your own cannabis, chances are high that you are very particular about the inputs you use for growing. People like us painstakingly self-educate on cannabis nutrients and techniques so we can cultivate the best tasting and cleanest flowers possible. And when we go to purchase those nutrients, we want to be sure that our supplier shares our values and is providing exceptional quality. This is why I recommend buildasoil.com to my friends who care about quality. Build a Soil empowers organic growers to do their best work by sourcing and shipping only the finest cannabis growing supplies. From organic inputs, soils, soil testing and pots, to lights, growing tents, sprayers, and cover crops, Build a Soil founder Jeremy Silva doesn't just stock his store with what's available. He goes deep to personally vet each product for quality and determine that there isn't a better version of the product that he could be selling. Because of this arduous process, you know that your options on buildasoil.com have been carefully curated to create the results you are looking for. Not only that, but the Build a Soil way is a philosophy that will permeate your interaction with the company. From website design to pricing and shipping to after-purchase support, Jeremy and his team always strive to do their best and give you the best customer service in the business. Check out buildasoil.com today for top-tier quality cultivation supplies and a friends and family buying experience. And check out their educational videos and extraordinary social media while you're there too. Quality organic growing supplies at buildasoil.com. While I love growing under the sun, there's a lot of good reasons to grow indoors. And if you're like most folks, you want a lighting source that grows high-yielding, healthy plants without using excessive amounts of electricity. BIOS Lighting creates biological lighting solutions that brings the natural brilliance of the outdoors into your grow room. BIOS Lighting has the attributes that I look for in a horticultural lighting solution. I've bought those cheap lights online, and they're difficult to work with and fail in no time. In contrast, my BIOS LED light is industrial grade to last a long time. It is IP66 wet rated, so little foliar overspray won't harm it. It is easy to clean without taking it down, and of course, the most important aspect, it is built for the exact light spectrum I want for great yielding, healthy cannabis plants. And it doesn't hurt that their lighting rigs look badass too. Many horticultural LED lighting systems are based on irrelevant performance metrics, and people love to argue online about these numbers. I prefer to judge on par photon efficiency and how happy my plants are, and the BIOS lights exceed my expectations in these categories. BIOS lights have an optimized broad spectrum that maximizes photosynthesis and plant growth while also providing the ideal conditions for superior par efficacy and a comfortable visual experience. I also love their attentive and overeducated customer service folks. BIOS starts with a team of biologists before getting the electrical engineers involved. They have studied how light impacts cannabis plants and devised an overall strategy that works. I encourage you to check out their website at bioslighting.com to learn more about how this strategy can work for you. And Shaping Fire listeners can get a special deal. Use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, no caps, for 10% off your entire purchase. That's bioslighting.com. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. 
And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynamico endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the current leading brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. This new product called Dynamico is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. since the product first arrived here last year. You may have already even heard about Dynamico by its original name, Dynamike. Now, Dynamico is available at grow shops and online in the United States for the first time. I love using Dynamico to both speed up the growth of mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynamico. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynamico at dynamico.com and find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O.com. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico endomycorrhizal inoculant. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is socioecologist Seth Crawford. So, Seth, we got everybody all excited about uh, triploids during the first set because uh, we're going to make these, uh, you know, these superhero uh, chemovars that also uh, can't be pollinated accidentally. So, of course, the big question is, how are they made? And I know that there are people listening that are saying, man, F that GMO stuff. And so let's start there by being really clear that this is not genetically modified organisms. So would you go ahead and make a clarification on the science so that people can be really clear that this is actually nature? These are not genetically modified organisms. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is, it's actually something that does spontaneously happen in nature on its own. Um, And when you maybe step back and, and take a look at some of the most successful invasive weeds that have propagated across the country, across the world, many of them are tetraploids because of all of those previous uh, evolutionary advantages that we were talking about before in terms of, uh, you know, vigor and and chloroplast count and efficiency of of using resources. Um, So it's something that, you know, in the long span of history happens regularly and has actually given rise to most of the uh, uh, the diploid species that we've seen today. So what you end up seeing is a spontaneous transition to, say, a tetraploid. And then sometime in the future, uh, you'll have a, a halving again and you'll go back to, to diploids. And it's it's part of the reason that we see a lot of the diversity in, in uh, many different plant species is because of these sort of go to tetraploid, go back to uh, diploid um, over the over these long periods of time. Um, in our program, we're taking plants that have been very specifically bred for characteristics that we felt were important and are part of our, our uh, previous diploid breeding program. And, and now we're bringing in uh, uh, 
new what what were uh, new characteristics and new traits in diploid form, and then we're putting them through uh, essentially a, a, a chemical transformation. So we're we're taking a diploid plant and doubling its chromosomes, uh, not inserting anything new, but taking what's there and literally just doubling it um, using using chemicals in vitro. Uh, and then having to grow those plants out repeatedly, take cuttings, uh, grow them out again, take cuttings, grow them out again. And at every single one of these uh, stages, uh, it's anywhere between six to eight months to make this this happen from start to finish. Uh, we have to test every single one of those plants with a flow cytometer, which is a very fancy piece of science equipment that is able to tell you the size of the underlying genome of the plant that you're looking at. Um, so we're having to screen to make sure that these uh, formerly diploid plants have been successfully transitioned to tetraploids. You know, one of the things I think it's important to point out is that, you know, while you use a lot of technology in this sort of breeding, um, you know, the use of technology itself does not set it up for being GMO. And the way I normally talk about it with patients is that it's kind of the difference between technology between a magnifying glass and a scalpel. You know, when it comes to a magnifying glass, you're, you're looking what is there. And then with a scalpel, you are cutting and rearranging. And, and all of your technology that you're using is essentially different forms of a magnifying glass. So you are, you are using analytics and testing and, uh, and gene mapping to see what there is so that you can have a better grasp of what's naturally in your plants so that when you have your plants naturally interact, you get it right the first time ish instead of kind of like just shooting from the hip without knowing what's in your um, genetic makeup like most of us pollen chuckers do. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Most definitely. Yeah. And uh, the, the magnifying glass versus scalpel is a good metaphor. The, the way that I usually describe it is uh, it's we're reading rather than writing. Um, so like our, our PacBio SQL2, it's a whole genome sequencer that allows us to get every single A, T, G, and C that uh, makes up the entire basis of each one of these individual plants. We're able to read all of those letters, you know, up to a hundred times uh, to know with hundred, close to hundred percent certainty, 99.99% is where the accuracy is at now. Um, what is actually in those plants? And in the case of these tetraploids, um, you, you can liken it to a copy machine. So rather than, you know, making some sort of big edits and changing things, we're taking what's already there and just making an additional copy of it. Uh, and, and that's like I had said before, that's kind of where we get into the, you know, the, the nitty gritty is being able to figure out which of those, which of those genes are good, which of those genes, you know, when combined with themselves again, end up being bad. Uh, and which of the, more importantly, which of the plants uh, in these crosses, which one do you want to have two copies of the genome versus which one do you want to have just one copy uh, on the triploid crosses? 
So this 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 next question is probably going to be dry for some folks, but I know that there are, are serious breeders listening who are really going to be grateful that we took this extra step down this path. And this is what I'd like you to do, if you would. You know, since you're talking to me that since you're saying that each of these cycles in trying to find you know tease out the attributes you want take you know six to eight months, would you just give us um, a a timeline of milestones? on the creation of a, of a triploid chemovar. Like, and what I'm imagining is you're like, okay, we start with this and then we do this and then we do this a few times and then we end up with this. Just because I, I know that the breeders want to be able to picture the process in their heads so they can wrap their heads around it. So would you, would you go through that process for us? Yeah. So we release F1s, which means that you have to have two independently developed, highly inbred uh, parents. One is a pollen donor, one is a pollen recipient. Uh, those just getting to the point where you have developed the two parent lines is, you know, roughly a, a three-year process. Um, and I, I have explained it elsewhere um, over the over the years, but it's, you know, you find a you find a cross that you really like. It has the attributes that you want. Uh, you inbreed that plant. You take the seeds off. You grow those out. You test them. You find the best one. Uh, you grow that out. You self-pollinate over and over and over as many times as you possibly can to lock in all of the traits that are, you know, exactly what you're looking for in terms of stabilization with that one variety. Simultaneously, you're doing exactly the same process with a separate line, uh, inbreeding, 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 et cetera, uh, doing your selections. At the end of all this, you know, four to five generations down the road, then you can actually bring them back together and create your F1. So you, you pollinate one highly inbred line with another highly inbred line that results in seeds that would actually go into the farmer's hands and go into their fields that uh, rather than being highly inbred, they're, uh, they're very heterozygous, which gives them hybrid vigor and allows them to, to thrive in a field. That's a, that's a three-year process. Um, when, you add the, when you add tetraploids to the mix to make a triploid F1, you basically take – you have to choose, and this is the important part, choose which one of those parents you want to have uh, the, the two copies uh, donated to your, your triploid. Um, identify which of those you want and then go through the process of chemically transforming uh, those plants. And we do that basically from, uh, from cuttings and you have to have hundreds of those cuttings, uh, treat them with the chemical. Most of them are going to die. Uh, a handful of them will survive. And those survivors end up being the, uh, the tetraploids that then get, uh, cuttings taken off of them, tested again, grown out, cuttings taken off of them again, uh, tested, grown out. And then they become, uh, if they pass all of those tests and remain tetraploids, then those plants will end up going into our, our production environments to make the triploid seed. So you're really looking at what used to be, if you were really, if you were really pushing uh, and, and doing your hybridization programs quickly and still giving yourself a year to do field trials, it's, it's about a three-year process. Now we're looking at closer to four, four and a half years um, from the time that we start a project until we can, we can get seed into a farmer's hands uh, as a triploid F1. Well, I like the compactness of that explanation. Um, it's always nice to interview somebody who was formerly a professor. Um, uh, my question for you, though, is um, 
if if did so you started this project like five years ago uh so the inbreeding to get to the point where we had the the diploid parents uh you know we've been working on that this this whole time um basically where we're at right now is we can we can take any of these parents that we've developed over the years uh, and we're continually developing obviously new parents uh so like this upcoming year we're uh, releasing cbdv dominant plants and cbgv dominant plants so new compounds all together that allow industrial hemp farmers to meet the super stringent usda enforced 0.3 percent thc limit uh even at at harvest so uh it's basically a, a fairly revolutionary development for farmers um so we've got these plants hold on a second we didn't need to stop there for a second you know all of these growers whose chins just dropped what you just said is like a bombshell we've got two brand new novel cannabinoids that that don't test hot at um at harvest <laughs> correct that's yeah. a that's a pretty big deal to just slide on through so oh, yeah it's kind of it's kind of big um and it's not just like one variety we we've spent the last three years working to completely uh remake our entire library so all the varieties that we've released over the last couple of years super haze special sauce lifter etc cetera, etc cetera, those have all been converted into these varin rich uh triploid forms so we're releasing uh, fully compliant, uh, fully infertile uh, female flowers. So this is varin rich triploid varieties for 2021. It's uh, uh, very exciting. All right. So I so I interrupted you, but essentially you were saying that you can take any of these varieties um, that you've been bringing in the market for the last few years, do this dance remix on them, and boom, now they can be uh, triploid. And so you're you're taking stuff that you've already proven. And and you know upgrading them essentially. Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly right. So so one of the things that I found interesting is that you know when you're using these three sets of chromosomes, um, there are all of these attributes, good and bad, that are bouncing around that you're trying to get a, a, a handle on. Um, but a lot of these um, are not good and they, they create imbalances, you know, uh, uh, like, you know, epi, epigenetic changes and genome size and, you know, you know, increase and decrease genomic diversity. Um, what are some of the imbalances that you have seen are common in cannabis to come out when attempting to, you know, find a triploid that's in balance you know the the number one thing that we're seeing is uh you know that process of inbreeding while it does lock in very specific traits that you target it can also lock in uh deleterious alleles over time and what's really problematic is that you don't always see uh the full expression of the negativity that goes along with those particular genes when there's only two copies. Uh, but they are coming out when there's three copies on a, on a much more regular basis. So you could have a variety that, you know, you've worked over a long period of time to stabilize and it seems to be, you know, hitting, hitting all the marks that you want. But as soon as you add one additional copy, then everything goes haywire. Um, basically it's just, it's that, that accumulation of, of negative alleles uh, over time. Now, 
I could also see this being problematic. Uh, we're, we're very specific in uh, flowering time. It's something that we've been uh, spending a lot of time on the, on the genomic side and uh, just in, in terms of data collection, being able to catalog every possible permutation that is, that's out there with these different flower time genes uh, and flower response genes that all end up working in concert together to end up forcing a, a plant to go into flower at particular times. What's really problematic with triploids is that if you get, say, two copies of, you know, for example, a, 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 the gene set that goes along with, say, a, a haze plant, you know, an, an old haze that is uh, equatorial in, in origin, two copies of that will even when you have, say, a, a copy of an autoflower gene also, you're going to end up with a plant that doesn't finish flowering until uh, December, right? Mm -hmm. So it's understanding which combinations end up leading to the results that you want. Um, and for us right now, that is identifying different flowering genes that allow you to have staggered harvests from, say, early August all the way through the end of October, depending on the, the bioregion that you're in. Uh, be, really being able to nail that down is is critical, but it's also probably one of the most uh, problematic areas, I think, or it will be a problematic area as folks get into triploid breeding, uh, just understanding what those those genes are and how those gene networks interact when you increase ploidy. And when you're using this at a commercial level and you're using thousands of seeds, that becomes really important uh, for the simple reason. If you think about succession planting in your home garden, your food garden, you know, we're, we're, we're planting, you know, lettuces and things that grow quickly, you know, sometimes once a week, maybe every other week. And the idea is that so you get lettuce all through the summer and you don't just get a hell of a lot of lettuce just one week. Right. And and for a lot of commercial folks, they don't want to have to harvest all of their acreage all at the same time. And so they'll plant some and then a little longer later, they'll plant some more. But but that kind of succession planting only really works if you if those seeds are locked in to go from germination to being finished in in a set number of days, say 90 days. So that so that if you if you sow seeds a week apart, you know that they'll be ready to harvest a week apart. And uh, so I can imagine that is probably why you, you know, you put so much focus on that, because if that doesn't work, then this doesn't work at scale. That's exactly right. And, you know, when you're, when you're talking about non-psychoactive cannabis farming, uh, you really are talking about large scale. Um, you know, it's, there are smaller farms and it's great. We love them. We, we are doing everything that we can to support them, but on a biomass side, uh, you know, there, there are really, really large farms. And you know, as a plant breeder, you're standing naked before the world when you've got a thousand, a thousand acres of your seeds in a field, you know, and if there's any type of, of hiccup in terms of that flower response time, you're going to hear about it and the farmer is not going to be successful. And uh, for us, if farmers aren't successful, then, then we haven't done our job. And unsuccessful farmers are nasty. <laughs> so <laughs> you don't, you want to be real. You want to make sure you do your job well so that they're not coming with pitchforks and, uh, and f fire torches and such. 
Exactly. We'll save that for the government. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so let's talk a little bit more about some of the challenges um, when making uh, triploids. So, you know, um, alba, albinos, albinism is uh, pretty common when making triploids, um, and that would be no chlorophyll. And so those die pretty quickly because of a lack of photosynthesis. Are you seeing that pop up um, with working with the cannabis genome, um, because it's entirely possible that um, albinism is more just common in other species. You know, we, we do see that, but uh, we have not seen a heightened expression in triploids. And that is, that's the case even on, uh, say, the poorly performing inbred uh, varieties. Um, it has not popped up. Now, you know, in a field of, of you know, hundreds of thousands of plants, you're definitely going to see that. And uh, we we've seen it um, in certain crosses in field trials in previous years with uh, diploids, uh, it's not a high frequency, but it's definitely something to to, to be concerned with. Um, the flip side of that, though, I, I would say, is that if you can lock that trade in, some of those uh, some of those plants that either have albino expressions or have uh, uh, significant extreme variegation, or, or say even a, a leaf shape change that is becoming very popular right now, um, you can make those express in particular ways that would be fantastic for, say, like a home garden. So there's there's challenges for large-scale field production for, say, cannabinoids or fiber or for food, um, but there's also some, I think, some really unique opportunities from just a, a home gardening uh, ornamental plant standpoint um, that we haven't seen with cannabis before, which is kind of exciting. Well, here's a non sequitur for you. So if you've had at least one or two albino cannabis plants through all your trials, um, I would love for you to compare and contrast what you saw as an albino plant versus, you know, very often we will see indoor plants um, a photograph posted to Instagram or similar, and there's always the ensuing fight in the thread below arguing whether or not this is an albino plant or whether or not this is a plant that was bleached by being too close to a uh, an LED light. And so visually, I'm assuming you've seen these photos too. So, yeah. so, so compare that, those, those, those stark white plants that we, that were grown under LEDs. Is that how a cannabis albino presents itself? Because I know some species look more pink and some look more white. I don't think that I can know scientifically true that I have seen an albino. It's always been someone showing me a picture. So, so what does an albino cannabis plant actually present as? Uh, what, what's really interesting is that it very rarely will it actually encompass the entire plant. Um, more often than not, you'll get a, a, a you know, a sport, a side shoot, mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, say a half of a, the really interesting ones are the uh, a shoot that half of the plant or you know, excuse me half of the shoot is green and half of the shoot is white. Um, those are pretty good examples. Uh, partial albinoism. Um, the ones that you're seeing on the internet, uh, you know, if the top of the flower is you know a half an inch from the LED and the only thing that's <laughs> white on the plant is that bleached out spot, uh, pretty good indication that it's it's uh, from the light rather than a genetic abnormality. Um, one of the things that's really cool about uh, especially the, the, the variegated plants that have a tendency towards albinoism is 
uh, two years ago, we found a, a beautiful example of this in the field. And <laughs> Eric, in his infinite wisdom, uh, dug it up. And, you know, I'm like, what are you doing? Why are we spending this time to dig this plant up? So he digs it up, puts it in a pot, and uh, we took it back to our to our uh, other farm and just stuck it in the shade. He had this idea that, uh, you know, if you just take that plant, get it out of the direct sun and put it in the shade, it would actually start to put, uh, you know, chlorophyll back into the leaves. Lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. Um, so essentially what you've got is a plant that thrives in shade grown conditions rather than a plant that's thriving in these high intensity, you know, solar radiation in the, in the field, um, which is really, really interesting. I, I think it, it lends itself to the explanation of just how plastic this cannabis plant really is. Give it a different environment. Uh, it would thrive, but for, you know, field production, it may not necessarily be the best case. Um, kind of as a side note, I've, I have been really enjoying seeing all these um, atypical morphologies of cannabis, you know, kind of have their heyday as there's more people breeding and more people being able to share and feeling free to share their photographs, you know, on Instagram, we're seeing lots more pictures of variegation and the ensuing argument about whether or not it's variegation or whether it's mosaic or something. Um, right. So there's, there's a lot of that, but it's, it's cool to see people sharing pictures of variegated plants that historically we haven't been able to see because everybody is seeing these in hiding right during the prohibition days. And, um, and that's really cool. And then of course, like the, um, the freak show plant that like has got everybody, you know, tantalized for the last couple of years. It, you know, it looks more like a tomato plant than like a cannabis plant. And then of course the newly arrived Australian bastard, uh, genetic line that, that again looks like a, you know, a fern of some sort instead of a cannabis plant. And, and, you know, all these different morphologies, it's, um, you know, I never thought there was a thing. And now there's these kind of, you know, interesting plants to grow and experiment with for people who just like love the cannabis plant itself, you know, you know, at this point and, and maybe never, they will never be production level plants, but I really like my freak show that's on my deck right now. It looks super <laughs> cool, you know? <laughs> yeah. And well, and that's the whole idea. I think, you know, in, in previous years, if you're capped with you know a certain number of plants and you're going to obviously want to call the 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 individuals that are not going to give you what you need you know in most cases that was cannabinoids uh now everything is a little bit laxer and people are starting to look at the potential of not only you know the 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 medicine but also the food and the fiber and quite honestly the just the fundamental beauty of a unique you know a unique individual from a population um, I mean, there's the entire ornamental uh, plant breeding industry is is built on that. And I think we're going to probably start seeing ornamental cannabis plants in people's yards. You may not be able to tell that it's a cannabis plant anymore, but I think that's part of the fun and the beauty and the plasticity of, of this awesome species. Yeah, I totally agree with that. That is going to be nice to, you know, the to be able to, to grow the plant for, it, you know, the joy of gardening, right? Instead of feeling like you have to do it in prohibition mindset, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So this next question, I think to a certain degree, I'm asking this next question just because I want to get this phrase into the show. And so, um, there's this, uh, there's this, uh, this thing called mixoploid chimera, right? And so a mixoploid chimera 
happens sometimes when breeding triploids and, and its definition is an inconsistent ploidy from one plant, right? And so in my mind, I'm, I'm picturing that like, like in, instead of the, the breeding process kicking out all triploid seeds, it's actually kicking out seeds that have got different numbers of, um, genetics in them, different, different numbers of sets. And so the resulting seed stock is going to be not ubiquitous, not uni- uh, comprehensively ubiquitous. Like they won't be the same. Right? Um, right. So, so how hard is it when you are, um, ramping up the scale, right? After you've done this long, arduous process that you've already um, described to get the plant that you actually want, how challenging is it to then make, you know, tens of thousands or more of, of these triploid seeds that are all exactly the same so you get the success in the field? Uh, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and it, the answer comes down to just repeated testing. Um, so even though, you know, we've, as I described before, you know, you take a a significant amount of time to test and test and test over and over using the flow cytometer, uh, to establish that you have tetraploids and you have diploids in your breeding population. Um, you have to continue to do that. And it, it gets even more complicated with what we're having to do for 2021, which is also, you know, making these these varin rich plants uh, in the in the process. It means that every single pollen donor that goes into one of our our uh, our greenhouses has to be individually tested both for its ploidy and for its varin content to ensure that we've got everything that we're we're looking for uh, in terms of being able to produce seeds that that are and I wouldn't say 100% uniform on the seeds because there still is variability uh, however they they are hitting all the marks for the traits that that we're interested in um, what what's kind of interesting is to to actually get to a plant that is hundred uh, percent uniform would require a different type of ploidy induction. So rather than increasing the ploidy level, you decrease it to a haploid level where there's only one chromosome, uh, one, one set of, uh, excuse me, a single chromosome, uh, from the parent, from the donor. So that would be an individual haploid that could then be chemically altered to have, uh, two sets, two copies of those same chromosomes, but they're identical. And that's when you end up being able to produce, they're called doubled haploids, which are essentially uh, seeds that act just like a clone would, um, but come along with all the benefits of uh, seed vigor and uh, having no, no diseases, no pests, that sort of thing on the clone itself. No, that sounds like a gold standard right there. It really is. Um, and it's, to be honest, I know there are other groups that are working on this. They have been for a while. Um, we're, we have a research contract with Oregon State University uh, working on this just to figure out if it's viable. Um, I think in the long term, and it's an interesting area for me because what you just described and saying, uh, you know, your triploids are, are uniform. They're uniform to a certain degree. We're we're very interested in maintaining some diversity within these different genotypes to ensure that if there is some kind of, uh, you know, if you have some sort of environmental problem or you have a pest pressure, um, you really do need to have a certain level of diversity, even in your seed crop that's in a field to be able to handle those types of pressures uh, and to identify, you know, certain, certain genotypes or certain uh, phenotypes 
that can withstand those types of pressures. Um, so it's it's kind of that that idea of of trying to trying to get towards a monocrop in a monoculture crop in the sense of uh, you know maximizing your productivity of acres, while at the same time balancing that with the necessity to not have a monoculture in your field. You know, having that enough diversity to be able to respond to um, you know short term pressures. So let's dig a little bit more into that uh, uniformity question, because, you know, one of the biggest aspects of uniformity in cannabis that's important is with feminized seeds, right? Because it doesn't take many sneaker males to ruin a crop of otherwise female plants. And and you're kind of act uh, adding another variable that really must be at, you know, if not 100% really damn near 100% like we are with feminized seeds, this fact that the seeds won't pollinate, right? So like how uniform are these triploid seeds that are being produced in their uniformity in they are pollen impervious? Yeah, that's it's a really good question. Uh, In two, two, two questions all bottled up there. Uh, one is, you know, what, what sort of feminization rate are we seeing with these triploids? Is it comparable to the diploids? Um, with our diploids, it's 99.98%. So one in 4,000 roughly uh, would end up having a male phenotype. In the triploids, we're seeing exactly the same numbers, which is super interesting to me. Uh, and we're going to dig into that a little bit deeper on the, the genomic side to get a better understanding of it. Um, but the other side of it is, Given uh, you know a triploid plant uh, exposed to pollen, how how seed free is this plant? Um, and what we're saying is that it is nearly seed free in the sense that uh, last summer we had an experiment in a sealed greenhouse. This is a 7,000 square foot sealed greenhouse, no air coming in, no air going out, uh, where we had a triploid that was pollinated by I believe we had 300 different pollen donors that had all been reversed and they're they're making copious amounts of pollen. Um, you know, you walk into that greenhouse and you would get sick if you're allergic to pollen. Uh, the triploids that were in that greenhouse produced, um, one produced, I believe, four seeds and another one produced, I believe, five, uh, which we were comparing it to the diploid uh, sisters right next to it. Um, those those plants were were fully seeded. And on a weight comparison, you're looking at about one four thousandth of uh which which is pretty phenomenal the interesting part about that too is that the seeds that come off of those triploids are actually non-viable so you would end up with you know like i said four four to five seeds per plant in a greenhouse that is completely inundated like inches of pollen (laughs) on the benches when we were all done with you know at the end of the day uh they're they're highly highly resistant to to pollen which is Really, really interesting because not only are you you protecting your your neighbors from you know your own crop if you're planting all female seeds you're already doing the right thing, um, but now you're basically guaranteed of not you're not going to pollinate your neighbors because the pollen coming off of those triploid plants are also non-viable. Uh, there's no risk to yourself. You're not going to self-pollinate because you know honestly the the, the plants don't get pollinated. Um, so it, it's really a, a win-win, and they are are very, very, uh, very difficult to pollinate. It's interesting too, that it's not simply an on or off switch, um, where the triploids that did produce seeds, it wasn't like, oh yeah, these produce seeds and now they're full of seeds. It's like, it's like, oh yeah, the, the 
plant, produce seeds, but it's only like three or four. It means that, you know, even though some of the individual flowers, you know, kind of failed, if you will, to be pollen resistant, um, it wasn't the plant as a whole. And so there's like multiple layers of threshold there to resist the pollen. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, like we'd said earlier, these are, they're super plants. Yeah. And, you know, really interesting to think about. So, so let's go ahead and take our second uh, break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the, some of the uh, applications of triploids and, and where this is going to go. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, And our guest this week is socioecologist Seth Crawford. For years, organic cultivators have been looking for a replacement for using peat moss. Peat moss has long been the go-to soil amendment for water retention and container growing, but organic growers know that peat moss is an unsustainable resource, and the mining of peat bogs destroys habitat and releases sequestered carbon. But peat moss works so well that many have continued to use it. But now there's finally a revolutionary replacement for peat moss that shares the same benefits while also being sustainable. Pit moss sounds and acts like peat moss, but instead of being mined from fragile ecosystems, it actually is made from upcycled organic paper and tree bark. Pit moss is excellent at retaining water in your substrate and creating air pockets and tiny living environments for microbes. Pit moss instantly increases aeration, nutrient absorption, and water conservation too. Carefully and locally sourced, pit moss is the result of decades-long research into the use of recycled paper fibers. Pit moss has the fluffy nature of peat moss and handles exactly the same. And like peat moss, pit moss is inert, so it won't change your pH. Available in a range of preparations, including a nutrient-enhanced blend, a coco-coir blend, and also as an organic soil conditioner with no added nutrients. Pit moss is also available as an animal bedding. So go to pitmoss.com now to learn more. That's P-I-T-T. M-O-S-S dot com. Growing healthier, more sustainable plants. Pit moss. For many, transitioning to organic gardening can be overwhelming. There's so much to learn about soil biology and fermentation. Bioflux Fermented Plant Boost from Everflux simplifies organic farming so you can start growing organically today. Invented by a California farmer growing organic for 40 years, Bioflux is a fermented natural farming preparation for those who want a natural microbe booster without having to brew their own. This extraordinary chemical-free growth and terpene enhancer improves root development, accelerates the conversion of organic matter into humus, increases nutrient use efficiency and uptake, and increases beneficial microbe activity. In addition to the Bioflux Fermented Plant Booster, Everflux also makes an activated biochar called Terraflux that is infused with the Bioflux Plant Booster. Imagine combining the buffering and rhizosphere-enhancing qualities of biochar infused with a range of earthworm castings, insect frass, kelp and crab meal, oyster shell, and other ingredients. I'm using Terraflux-infused biochar this summer myself, and it smells alive, rich, and potent. These products have been scientifically proven to match yields and increase flower quality and pest resistance when compared to traditional NPK inputs. If you are looking for reliable organic fertilizers that will free you up to focus on other aspects of your garden, consider using the range of all-natural regenerative fertilizers and natural biostimulants from Everflux. Find out more at everfluxtechnologies.com or by following their Instagram at Everflux. 
For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family-owned and providing reliable, high-yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband, and their award-winning Blueberry Muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous Freak Show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese Land Race. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant. Humboldt Seed Company, let them know Shango sent you. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is socioecologist Seth Crawford. So, Seth, we've talked about what triploids are and how they're made. Um, but, you know, this conversation brings up all sorts of, like, interesting side questions. And so in this third set, let's hit a bunch of those side questions and start with, you know, it is possible that most people who are not breeding are going to want these seeds as well, right? This idea that they can be, you know, super plants showing all of these incredible triploid, you know, expressions. I mean, me as just a simple patient home grower, I want to grow this stuff, even though I'm not growing acres of it. Um, are these, you know, is anybody doing triploids that are THC dominant, right? Or, or is it just other novel cannabinoids at this point, which are being designed for the, uh, for the medical hemp market? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and every home grower, once they have grown a triploid, uh, I don't think you will ever grow a diploid again. Uh, oh, that's, there's some fighting words. <laughs> I, 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 I'm a, I'm not a betting person, but I would, uh, I would definitely wager in that in that camp. Um, you're looking at a good example. There's really good papers, uh, scientific papers describing the differences between a triploid, uh, hop versus a diploid hop, uh, very similar families. And what you're seeing is, uh, essential oils. So the, the terpenes and the other olfactory components that make up the flavor profile of a, of a hop, um, are more than double in a, in a triploid versus a diploid. Uh, the same thing is true in the triploid cannabis plants that, that we're creating right now. Um, you've never smelled 
a, you've never smelled a plant that had a stronger flavor than these triploids. Um, conversely, they're also producing more cannabinoids. Uh, so you end up with a plant that's, I mean, it, it's basically the ultimate expression of what a cannabis plant can be. Um, so to answer your question, in short, no, unfortunately, there are not uh, triploid versions of THC plants that are available right now. Um, but it would not surprise me if there are a bunch of folks who are claiming that they have them after uh, people hear about this, yeah. because they are they are just so awesome. Um, one of the things that we are working on is, uh, you know, obviously we're we're an industrial hemp seed research and development company, so we have to to honor the uh, the federal rules and the USDA's guidelines on who we can give seed to and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I will say that we are pushing very hard at the federal level to be able to offer seeds to home growers. Um, I think we're going to be able to do that in Oregon for 2021. Uh, just trying to work it out nationally at this point. Uh, for others to participate in that process. Um, but I will say that as part of the research and development process, we end up with a lot of plants that are considered type ones. Uh, type one are, are high THC plants. Uh, in addition, we also have type two plants. And this is something to think about from a, from a gene stacking perspective. If you have a type two plant that's both uh, has an active CBD and an active THC gene, uh, what does that look like in terms of the underlying ratio when you have three potential copies? So you can stack these in different ways to achieve very different results. Um, we're definitely working on uh, making sure that we have tetraploid versions of many very, very famous and uh, useful THC plants. We're allowed to keep those as part of our genetic library, but we're not allowed to flower them out. Um, they would they would not meet the, obviously not meet the industrial hemp standards. However, we can do the transformations uh, on site at our company. And then because we live in Oregon, you know, we take these plants home and we can we can make seed with them and make, make triploid seed, you know, say in your basement or your garage. Uh, we're not doing commercial quantities of that and we're not legally allowed to sell them at this point, but um, they're definitely out there and they are definitely awesome. So, so if I understand this correctly, you can develop the genetics legally in your hemp company, but because though that is not a viable product under your license, you have to stop there. So if theoretically the laws were to change and and hemp breeding, you know, hemp seed manufacturers were able to now produce type ones, you actually have got a library of this seed that you'd go, oh, we're just going to put this into production now, even though they're they're kind of um they're kind of, it's like it's like spin-off technology from the work that you're actually trying to do. That's exactly right. That's a, a very nice way to describe it. We are basically just in a holding pattern waiting for federal legalization to open up. Uh, we're, we're cannabis breeders, and the underlying chemical compounds are, are very, very simple targets in terms of breeding. It's the rest of it that interests us. Uh, but, you know, as, as good plant breeders, we're always keeping our work backed up and uh, are always ready to move forward when the time is right. So, so let's say that you did, you know, take one of these, these uh, type one seeds that's triploid and you take it home and, and you make that your patient garden and you grow it and everything's all nice and legal. Is, are the differences between a triploid and a diploid seed growing 
is it so remarkable that you can tell that as the you know, assuming that you have some experience growing cannabis plants, right? Already, like if I grew this plant, would I be like, holy hell, this is a different kind of plant? Or is it like, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's a better seed. Like how, how remarkable is it? Uh, you know, in terms of, uh, say like olfactory components, uh, you know, not just terpenes. We know now that, uh, terpenes make up about 50% of what actually smells in a cannabis plant. The rest of them are different forms of alcohols and especially aldehydes. Uh, the triploid plants tend to have anywhere between 30 to 50%, uh, increased expression of those particular compounds, which means that they are the loudest flowers that you, <laughs> that you're wow. going to, uh, that you're going to end up smelling. Um, it, just as an example, uh, we've got one of my, my favorite plants of all time is uh chem dog number four. So it's uh, one of the chem dog, um, there's chem dog D chem 91 and, uh, chem four chem four has always been my personal favorite, uh, in diploid form. Now, when you see it in tetraploid form, uh, it, it's a whole other animal. Same smell, same giant flowers, same great structure, same over-the-top resin production, but the smell and the uh, trichome content on it, when you look at it under a microscope uh, or even just a you know a loop, a jeweler's loop, uh, unbelievable. Like the the concentration is is incredible, and the smell is just overwhelming. Uh, so you can you can take that and then say like in in the case of uh, Chem Four, you can cross it with something else that has a completely different flavor profile. Say like a train rack uh, with a terpenoline dominant expression. And then end up creating this new flavor profile that is not only incredibly intense in a plant that's, you know, really, really vigorous, uh, but it's inc it's completely unique. It's an expression that has never been seen before because those two types of terpenes don't end up lining up when you're uh, when you're making crosses. Um, so it, it really opens up the possibility not only of having a, a, a more vigorous plant with higher yields and better oil, uh, but also just increasing that total amount of diversity that's present. Wow. That's pretty sexy. I should, we should have started the show with that question. We would have kept people a lot longer <laughs> who we, who we lost because of the science. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's really exciting to be able to try these plants. You must've been flabbergasted because they're like, you know, I know you're, you know, uh, uh, you know, you're a breeder and a professor and a, and a business person, but like, you're also a toker. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, I love cannabis. Yeah, love so really this good flavored cannabis. You right? must have been blown away to see to to experience Chem Four as your own triploid. Yeah, yeah, and we're we're basically doing that process right now. Uh, this is a, a shout out to to CSI Humboldt and uh, Caleb's work. Uh, we've been following his work for a number of years, and have just always appreciated his level of detail when when hunting for different phenotypes and making sure that things are quote unquote real. Uh, he does a lot of work making S ones, so taking these really famous plants, these famous cuttings, self pollinating them, and then offering the seeds. And for for a plant breeder sifting through S1s is where the a lot of the magic really happens. You're able to to lock in the traits that you really want and get unique flavor profiles. Um so for a lot of the the THC varieties that I personally work with, um you know if it's not a cutting or something that's been shared by other people in the community, uh we're going to seeds from, you know, reputable uh, reputable underground breeders who continue to stay underground, and I appreciate that, <laughs> uh, who are making these S1s of, of famous plants. So we've got things like Durban Poison, California Orange, uh, Trainwreck, Purple Urkel, uh, you know, all of these different S1 varieties um, 
that have been released and we're now basically sifting through, uh, figuring out which ones have exactly what we're looking for, both on a, a genomic standpoint and then from the chemical standpoint. And then we're going to make tetraploids out of them and uh, basically be ready for 2022 when uh, we're, we're hoping that federal legalization happens and everybody in the world can taste these flavors. Damn, that's exciting. Uh, I also love uh, Caleb's S1 packs. Like, you know, people will put out reg seeds and call it a breeder's pack. And, you know, it'll just have uh, more seeds, right? So you get more more phenos at a good price. But for me, Caleb's S1 packs are like the gold standard as far as breeders packs, you know, there's so much variety. He, he describes that, um, he was actually on shaping fire episode 49 talking about feminized, uh, cannabis. And he's all like, you know, these, these S one seeds, if you have enough of them, you kind of have a, um, a snapshot of what is possible, you know, in that line of seeds. And, you know, it's, it's, it's actually a lot of credit to Caleb as well. Uh, you just mentioned him as somebody that you respect. And a couple of weeks ago, we had Ryan Lee on the show and he mentioned out of nowhere that he respect Caleb Inspector from CSI Humboldt as well. So that's, you know, that, that, that that's a lot of, that's a, got a lot of good love for a guy who, you know, mostly tries to stay in the underground. Yeah, and I I feel bad just for bringing his name up. I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> well, you know, he he's not in the shadows. He's just uh, he, he's just uh, happy to stay uh, small and local to humble. You know, it you know, and it's one of those things where he's actually doing a tremendous service to other breeders by being able to uh, to take these these famous clones and not just you know reverse them and make seed, but he's actually doing the due diligence to make sure that it is what it is uh, and, and verifying that to the best of, of his ability and I think anybody's ability at this point, but then also making something like that available. So, you know, it used to be that we would ship clones around the country in, you know, DVD cases, and yeah. that was how the underground stayed alive. It's how we shared cuttings with each other and, and made sure that there was not only, you know, cannabis plants across the country and you had sour diesel in, you know, New York and in Oregon, uh, but it, it was a way of of basically creating culture and camaraderie uh, with people who were taking the same type of risks that you were. He's been living that and also making these these seeds available. Uh, from a breeding perspective, if you can get an S1 of, say, Trainwreck, if it's you know a legitimate cut, which in this case it is, you have all of the possible permutations of that particular variety in seed form available to you. And because it's an S1, you're actually getting uh, expressions of both of the parents. And you can start to sift through that and figure out, well, what was it that made that particular plant, the original train wreck, so amazing? And for us, we're doing it from a chemical and a genomic standpoint. So really exciting. It's, it's exciting to to be able to have that as an opportunity, and it's exciting to be alive at this moment in time, being able to uh, subject all of these classic flavors, these classic varieties to uh, really unprecedented analytical capabilities. Uh, this summer, actually, we got a couple of the uh, Skittles S1s. Uh, from Caleb here on Vashon. And uh, we just opened the packs and we spread them around different patients on the island. And, um, you know, we, we spread them around before the pandemic got more serious. Uh, and the idea that we were going to do was that everybody was going to grow different seeds from the S1 pack. And then we were going to do kind of like a, a progressive 
you know, wander your way around the island and, and, and check out everybody's gardens and everything. And so we're going to have to do that somehow more creatively with masks and crap this year uh, now. But um, it's really enjoyable, you know, for anybody who loves the plant to check out these S1s it, it, where you're all like, oh, yeah, these are all Skittles plants. I, I can see and smell that. But they all have got, you know, subtly different uh, personalities. And, you know, if you're a nerd for the plant, that's just a lot of fun. I would love to go along on that. It sounds like it's not going to happen uh, this year, but man, what a great idea. Yeah. I, I love that. Actually, you're probably going to appreciate it more next year because we also got some of the the Chemdog S1s. And oh, so that's awesome. what we're planning on doing next year. So so let's talk about something that is uh, really a theoretical because um, we'll talk more about, you know, uh, licensing issues uh, here in a little bit, but, um, you know, I know that the way that your seeds have to be sold, you know, due to the government regulations is you need to, you know, you need to sell to particular farmers and you can't just sell to the public. And, but, but as we know, you know, occasionally some of those seeds will find their way into like, you know, a friend of a farmer's hands. Um, what would happen if, if, a um, if, a if, a if, a you know, a home grower tried to replicate these triploids, like, you know, some pollen chucker. Oh, is it like uh, pollinating a triploid? Yeah, totally. Like, like they, you know, like they, well, essentially like people were doing with your other autoflower CBD seeds, right? Your autoflower CBD seeds would be put into the market. They're, you know, the farmer who bought them from you isn't supposed to share them, yet somehow miraculously their neighbor gets some and, and they hit them with pollen in the basement to try to keep going on the triploid. Yeah, the, the, Unfortunate for uh, the folks that are trying that, um, you're going to waste your pollen uh, just because the, the flowers are non-viable. And that's um, the know, whole point. <laughs> that's, and, it, you know, we're not doing it to to stop people from breeding with our work. Uh, we're, we're trying to help farmers from being, you know, cross-contaminated by a neighbor that's not being wise in their, their planting decisions. Or even, you know, for a farmer that's, uh, say, planting near a feral population of hemp, like we see all over the Midwest, you know, basically from, uh, you know, the, the southern United States all the way to, to Minnesota. Um yeah, you're you're just not going to end up with anything except uh, probably increased allergies if you're you know you have viable pollen in your basement. <laughs> so, what does the future of triploids look like? Right. So, if we've established that we can do a lot more with three sets of chromosomes than we can with two, and we're just putting our big toe in the pool of triploids in cannabis. And where we're, you know, where you're starting is for to be pollen resistant and, you know, you're going for, you know, yield and, you know, pest resistance and drought resistance and such. I'm assuming that there are a lot other traits that can be toyed with, um, but just aren't going to be in, you know, the first rev of, of seeds. What, what do you expect us to see coming from triploids, you know, over the next few years? It's a really good question. And uh, to be perfectly honest, outside of different flavor combinations that have never been seen, like I was describing before, uh, in the, these new cannabinoid profiles, um, you know, your flowering time, disease resistance, the, the, those big things that you'd already mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm really just scraping the surface. Uh, you know, every single week we're getting another four whole genomes sequenced and assembled and, uh, you know, available for us to, uh, basically start digging through and mining. 
uh, trying to figure out which of these different genes are contributing to different aspects of the plant that could potentially be useful. Um, I, I think in the, in the longer term, the way that I view this, you know, I, I, I don't have a specific answer, but I think in the, the longer term, what we're seeing is that these plants are going to have the capability of having greater evolutionary adaptability. Uh, this is a, you can go back to the, the notion of punctuated equilibrium. It's the, this specific concept of evolution and in, in how it operates. It was put forward by Stephen Jay Gould, one of the most brilliant 20th century evolutionary biologists. Um, notion that over long historical periods, you end up with essentially stasis, not a lot of change that happens. And then in specific moments, you have what's called punctuated equilibrium. The equilibrium is punctuated by uh, either external events that end up challenging a particular organism, uh, an organism survival, or, you know, something that is localized, say in the soil or, uh, you know, predators coming in and, and eating the plants. The idea here is that the more uh, adaptability that a particular species has uh, for any of these particular challenges, the more fit it is actually going to be. So as we see, you know, the ravages of climate change or uh, issues with, you know, weeds in, in fields or, you know, some of the, the larger ecological pressures that, that are undoubtedly going to be coming down on us in the 21st century, these plants have the capability of responding to that in a way that we, we can't even foresee at this point. Right on. That's very exciting. Um, and it also sounds like it's a real open-ended kind of answer, right? The The answer is um, we don't know what might still be in these plants because we're still learning the genome. And also we're not sure what we're going to need them to do yet because our, you know, as our, as, as climate change continues, we're not sure how it's going to manifest. So it's kind of like a, you know, a big open-ended question, which actually makes me feel really like, enthusiastic for, you know, the, 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 I don't know, the, the, the future geneticists and probably even more so the pot smokers that are in college right now who are studying these sciences. What a great time to be a, you know, 18, 19, 21 year old, something like that in school where you're able to actually study this in the classroom, get into a lab and then find yourself matriculating out of school and go into legit companies that are working like this and have this be your life's work. I mean, how bad ass is that what a great time to be coming into your career in cannabis yeah and i i only got here because i i you know basically got let go from the university for being a proponent of cannabis uh, so <laughs> i'm incredibly thankful to be in the position that i'm at but you know the the younger folks that we have in our company right now who are recent graduates you know with horticulture degrees or botany degrees or plant breeding degrees uh they they have a really hard time uh, keeping a smile off of their face because this is like <laughs> this is the moment in time. It's this golden age of cannabis breeding and discovery that, you know, you really only get to be around one time, you know, as it's happening. And it's it's happening. Um, one other thing that may be worthwhile noting is this idea that, you know, one of the problems that the Midwest has, I, I brought that up. It's good to have a triploid because you can't be pollinated by the feral populations that are left over from, uh, you know, fiber farming uh, in the first part of the 20th century. These native populations have established themselves and basically continue to thrive because it's a fairly adaptable and plastic plant. Um, one of the ways that we can end up dealing with that, I think, over time, and it's a, a bigger concern here in Oregon where, you know, you had a, a 
huge explosion of industrial hemp farms where people were using male and female seeds inappropriately and then basically just leaving the area. Uh, they let, you know, we're seeing it right now. There's fields all over in the Willamette Valley and in Southern Oregon where the farmers farmed last year, didn't take care of their crop and they're gone now, but the, the seeds remain. And so you have male and female populations popping up, wow. creating a feral population where there never was one before. Um, that's a very, very difficult thing to control. One of the things that we're working on is being able to use uh, tetraploids and diploids in rotation. So you basically grow your tetraploids for four or five years in a specific area, and then you can switch back to a diploid to make sure that you don't have uh, feral populations that pop up. You can use the ploidy to your advantage to basically stop uh, feral populations from emerging. That reminds me a lot of those mosquitoes that are in the news right now, where they, they GMO'd up some mosquitoes that don't breed and they're introducing them to the population. So the mosquitoes are breeding with, with sterile other mosquitoes. And even though, you know, we're talking about triploids, which are not GMO, we will repeat, um, <laughs> the, the idea is kind of the same, what you're talking about, this weed, you know, this feral reduction, because it will, uh, it'll stop them from producing, um, usable seed. That's exactly right. And, it, it, and again, just to highlight that, it, not GMO, we're taking something that naturally occurs. It's just, we didn't, we didn't know it. And to be perfectly honest, I bet there are people who are growing cannabis plants right now in their basement, in their garage, in their closet, uh, that are tetraploid and they just don't know it because these, these plants do pop up naturally in populations. It's just very, very rare. And most people don't have a $40,000 piece of, uh, uh, science equipment to be able to test in their home, you know, whether or not it's a tetraploid or a, a diploid. Um, so it's basically using this new knowledge, uh, to really be able to push both farming and, and ecology forward. Um, you know, we, we don't have to insert, genes from other species to have a good outcome. It's You don't have to genetically modify organisms uh, to be able to be good ecologists. We can actually use what's naturally available and use the tools that we've learned about in science to make the, the success rates much higher and much faster uh, to actually push us forward. Right on. That's beautiful. I don't think I'm going to top that. So as we, as we wrap up here, you know, I want to do something different. You and I have talked, you know, this is your third time on Shaping Fire. And each time you come on, you're, you're usually coming to share some, some new aspect of science with us. Um, and then after the interview, you get bombarded with, uh, <laughs> emails and contacts and all this kind of stuff more, more than you can handle. So, um, it, why don't we go ahead and answer a couple of the questions that you get hit with? I, this stuff's all on your frequently asked questions on the website, but let's just, let's, let's, let's hit the big two. Um, like how do people buy your seed and, I guess that's pretty much the question. And is there any, and, and is there any left for this year? Because like people are generally pretty disappointed when they find out to get your seed, they, they generally have to be a prior customer. So why don't you lay that down real quick before, before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I appreciate it. Um, we can always get seed from our website. Not always. We can get seed from our website, OregonCBDSeeds.com. Uh, at this point, you have to have an industrial hemp license issued by either your state or by the USDA. Uh, there's really nothing that we can do about that. Um, we did stop sales, and we do this every year. Uh, 
unless you are in a uh, state like California or Florida where there's different growing seasons, we shut our sales down for for each year, uh, July 1st, because we don't want to take advantage of farmers. Um, if you're trying to get plants in the ground or seeds started after July 1st in the Northern Hemisphere, you, you're you're really missing out. Um, you, you've missed the boat and you're not going to have a good crop. Uh, so we halt. Um, we'll start sale. Uh, sales for 2021 on these new triploid, Varen Rich, 100% compliant with the USDA 0.3 THC rule uh, on January 1st of 2021. And hopefully by that point, uh, we can have a little bit more clarity from the USDA on who's actually allowed to to purchase seed and whether or not we can get these to home growers. So we'll be working diligently to try to make that happen in the meantime. After you brought your uh, your CBD um, auto flower to the market, which honestly kind of remade the CBD market globally, uh, you sold out of those wicked fast because, of course, everybody wanted tens of thousands of them. Um, should we expect that with triploids for the next few years as well? Kind of like we're still seeing with like some of the CBG stuff. Is it, you know, you're here talking about it because triploids are the cutting edge of, of cannabis uh, breeding. But is it going to take three, four years for enough of them to be produced that they're going to be widely available? How, how, how much do we expect on seeing these? Uh, we have enough production capability to take care of the entire country next year. Oh. Uh, no problem. We've, we've spent the last two years focused on uh, building out our, our facilities and basically taking everything that we made from seed sales and putting it back into science people and, and uh, our production environment to make sure that we could, we could meet those goals and get everybody taken care of. Right on. Well, c congratulations on that scaling because it was only a few years ago that you were all like, damn, we keep on selling out. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and that, yeah. oh, that frustrated people to no end. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, you do everything that you can to try to, uh, to meet the demand and keep people happy. Um, but sometimes it's hard. It, it takes time to build capacity, um, but we are there and uh, we're, we're really happy to be able to, to get people what they need. Fantastic. Well, Seth, as always, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your very unique perspective from where you're sitting in, in cannabis. It's always cool to hear about the, the new things that, uh, you know, cannabis scientists in general are working on. But since, uh, since genetics is your bread and butter, it's nice to hear what you are going to be bringing out before it comes out. So thank you so much for your, for your kindness and your stories. Oh, thanks for having me. This is the, the best show on the internet and uh, you got some of the best people listening to it. We can't wait for him to hear it. Uh, awesome. Thank you, brother. I'll see you again soon. If you want to find out more about Oregon CBD seeds, uh, you can go ahead and go to their website at OregonCBDSeeds.com. Um, also, it's great to follow their Instagram at OregonCBD. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. 
Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose. <laughs>